This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu. Don't miss the new docuseries Black Twitter, a people's history. From memes to movements, see how this powerful online community shapes culture and society. Black Twitter, a people's history, is now streaming on Hulu. This is Fresh Air. I'm Terry Gross. Our guest, comedian, writer, and actor Aparna Nancherla, is known for her stand-up about her anxiety and depression. Now she has a book about having imposter syndrome. She talked about it with Fresh Air's Anne-Marie Baldonado. By most measures, comedian, actor, and writer Aparna Nancherla has had a lot of career success. She's a stand-up comic who's consistently been on lists of the funniest people right now and comedians to watch for her humor that she herself calls low-key and cerebral. She's had specials on Netflix and Comedy Central. She has a comedy album called Just Putting It Out There. She's written for shows like Totally Bias with W. Kamau Bell and Late Night with Seth Meyers and she's written for the New York Times. If this interview was happening at any other time, and there wasn't a Writers Guild of America strike and a sag after strike, I'd be asking her about all this and her many acting roles, including parts in shows like BoJack Horseman, Corporate, Space Force, and Master of None. Instead, I'll be asking her about her book of personal essays. In it, she examines her life and career and the anxiety and depression that she often talks about in her stand-up. You know, sometimes when you tell people you have anxiety, they're always like, well, you know, there's nothing to fear but fear itself. It's like, okay, have you checked out some of fear's work? (laughs) It's like pretty much churning out solid gold hits. And like if you don't have anxiety, the way I would describe it is like there's an edgy improv group in your brain. And it just needs like a one-word suggestion to spin like countless scenarios that no one's comfortable with. Like the whole time you're just like, when will this show be over? I just came to be supportive. None of these thoughts have a future. Her honest, funny take on anxiety and depression is what makes her so relatable to her fans. And in the book that's part memoir and part cultural commentary, Aparna writes about mental illness and about the fact that she can hear that list of career highlights and still think of herself as a fraud. Her book is called Unreliable Narrator, Me, Myself, and Imposter Syndrome. Aparna Nancherla, welcome to Fresh Air. Thank you for having me. Happy to be here. Why did you decide to write a book about imposter syndrome and how it pertains to you? It's sort of similar to how I first started talking about mental, my Mm. experiences with anxiety and depression in my act, where I was struggling with uh, it so acutely at the time. And I had gotten some career success under my belt and I was working full time as a comedian, but the feelings of self-doubt only seemed to increase the more opportunities I got. And I found that very demoralizing, I guess, to finally have achieved this quote-unquote dream and then feel either uh, unhappier or like more confused than ever. And I think just seeing that self-doubt escalate with the, uh, you know, success on paper was... um, scary for me, but also, uh, you know, as an artist, I I was kind of like, well, 
well, you have so much to say. Why don't you do some work? You know, you do something I can monetize. So I I forced my self-doubt to write a book. (laughs) In the intro to your book, you say that a therapist wants to ask you, so what if you're a fraud? Is that the worst thing? At least you're getting away with it. What do you think she meant by that? I'm not sure what that message was. I think she meant that maybe a lot of people feel like they're faking it, but they're not so hung up on the fact that maybe they're not fully, you know, qualified to be there or something like, you know, I I would say societally, like maybe uh, straight white cis men get away with that a lot where they're given things they don't necessarily deserve and then they're fine with it. And they're like, you gave it to me. So why, why shouldn't I have it? Whereas I'm like, oh, this is, this is wrong. I shouldn't have this. Someone else should. And I think my therapist was gently suggesting I adopt the former attitude. It seems to push people further in America than the latter. I was hoping you would read a bit from the beginning of your book. In this part, you're talking about what it was like right before you got a big break in comedy. You were thinking about quitting. You had just turned 30. You were temping at a studio in L.A. during the day and doing stand-up at night. To make things worse, your relationship with a long-term boyfriend was coming to an end. Can you pick it up from around there? To cap off the low-grade Greek tragedy, my boyfriend and I had just rid our apartment of fleas for the second time. We did not have pets. The likely culprit was a stray cat who liked to conduct sit-ins on our welcome mat, a form of protest I typically respect. To add insult to injury, the fleas left my boyfriend alone and bit only me, leaving me constantly itchy and gaslit in my own home. Conveniently, this is also an apt metaphor for trying to make it in show business as both a woman and a minority. You experience negatives that are clearly at play, but your male or white counterparts don't seem to be affected by them, whether that's being automatically considered for fewer opportunities because of how you look or present, yes, even now, or not knowing whether people value you for your actual ability or just for the fact you make them look more open-minded essentially as college admissions brochure set dressing. Worst of all, you're constantly scratching your feet and weirding out potential employers. Fine, I took it too far. I like that comparing living with fleas to (laughs) imposter syndrome, trying to make (laughs) it in Hollywood. (laughs) Very relatable (laughs) analogy. Yeah, no, you know, women, people of color experience a nagging, itching feeling that's invisible, like an invisible handicap. Um, And I think that's something important to keep in mind that, you know, there are these feelings of being a fraud, but maybe that's not because of the person, but the systems around them that are making them feel like they don't belong or that they're a fraud. I try to touch on that in the book about how it, a lot of things in our society are framed as individual level problems, because then it's kind of like you can target individuals as the, you know, makers of their own destinies. But a lot of it is systemic, and we need to kind of address these things at a systemic level to to really move forward in, in fixing them. And And I certainly think that's the case with imposter syndrome, where it is like, Why do people like women and minorities not feel like they fit into these environments? Not simply because maybe there haven't been people like them in those positions before, but also like what is the culture not doing that's still not making them feel like they fit in? Like I think those things often get avoided in favor of saying like, why don't you feel confident? Why don't you attend another seminar? 
I want to ask you about self-deprecating humor and humor as deflection. I think, you know, as we've been talking about, humor is just a good way of dealing with anxiety and depression. But did you ever feel like humor was like putting off dealing with things instead of dealing with things head on? Yeah, I think early on in my comedy, I did a lot of self-deprecating humor that Mm. was just kind of like, oh, let me make the joke before you can. Um, Like, I remember, I think my first late night set and a joke I did pretty early on was, you know, when I got on stage, I'd say, I'm surprised I'm a comedian, too, just to kind of let the audience know, like, yeah, this is weird that I'm going to be the next performer or like that I look like this and now I you are expected to laugh at me or something like that. So I think I was always kind of trying to be like, yeah, I also think it's weird that I'm here um, and feel like they were right for being surprised by me. But because I struggled with this performance anxiety for so long, it was so wrapped up in other people's expectations of uh, what they wanted of me or what I assumed they wanted. And I just realized that you can't operate like that as an artist. Comedy was something you wanted to do so much, but there were times where like your anxiety kind of took over and you couldn't quite do it. I'm wondering if you can talk more about that, like describe how difficult that must be, like wanting to do something, but sort of having part of you fight against it. It just felt very isolating to, and I think especially when I was talking about anxiety in my act, it felt very strange to then not actually be able to perform or just feel like even admitting I had it was like not enough to to relieve some of the feelings involved with it. And yeah, I I think I've always had a weird relationship with performing where it's just like I I love to do it and I value doing it, but there's so much ambivalence around showing up and and um even like, you know, just conversations in the green room before and after the show, like kind of everything about it stresses me out and then it's like there are then these just like fleeting moments on stage and it's like that's those are the things that I, I think really get me excited and there's a lot of song and dance to get there. You grew up outside of Washington, D.C. in the suburbs. Can you describe where you grew up? So I grew up not far outside D.C., but I grew up in a city called McLean, Virginia. And I would say it was a pretty typical suburban upbringing. Like we played, you know, with other kids on the street. My uh, sibling and I, my parents were immigrants from India and they were both doctors. They kind of came over in that, uh, I guess, white collar rush of um, professional workers from abroad that happened, I guess, in the late 70s. And yeah, I I grew up in a pretty um, sheltered household, I would say. My parents, like many immigrant parents, were kind of uh, wary of of a lot of American traditions and customs. So I feel like I grew up a pretty bookish kid. I love to read. I love to go to the library. I love to kind of stay close to home. But I was also just naturally pretty introverted and kind of daydreamy and in my head. So that that kind of worked out perfectly for me anyway. Um, but yeah, my mom was always, I think, trying to push me to kind of be more outside my shell. Like she would sign me up for all kinds of activities. I think I was in Girl Scouts for a while. I think I was 
She put me in like junior jazzercise. Like she just wanted me to be a very well-rounded person. She was like, you have to get your physical activity. You got to get your mental activity. Yeah, your mother put you in different activities. um, And one of them was this public speaking class where you guys were the only kids in the class. The rest of the people were adults. (laughs) And um, can you describe what that class was like and then what it kind of encouraged you to do, which was enter a public speaking competition for kids at your Hindu temple? Yeah. So I think, I mean, the public speaking class, I think my mom was like, this is, you know, a soft skill that will serve you for life. So why not start early? Um, so we ended up in this class and I, I honestly, like I found it stressful, but I also found it kind of comforting in that it was like a very, um, like they laid out step by step how to kind of talk to a group and, you know, even like how to move your hands and stand physically and how to make eye contact. And I found that like very helpful to just know how to navigate a situation like that because I had trouble even talking to like one stranger face to face. So I think something about that sense of control you have when you're talking in front of a group is later what translated to me to stand up as something that, oh, maybe this would fit for for what makes me more comfortable in terms of engaging with other people. And so after the public speaking class, yeah, um, my mom had my sibling and I sign up for this uh, speech contest that was run through our local Hindu temple. And I remember the prompt was something like, what is a critical issue facing, you know, Indian American youth today? And most people went with a more serious interpretation. They went with like bigotry or assimilation or, you know, being an immigrant. And I decided to go a sillier route. And I went with... um uh, t- doing just a gentle takedown of Bollywood movies, which is what my parents would often make uh, us watch at home. And they usually didn't have subtitles and I, I didn't speak Hindi. So it would be a lot of, you know, having to stop it and be like, wait, what's happening? What did they just say? And so I think I had some built up resentment about watching so many of them. I, I love them now and I, I understand them for the art form they are. But at the time, I, I think I I went on a minor rant about them and it went over better than I expected. Like the, I think the jokes all hit and I think I had never experienced connecting to other people uh, in terms of that many people in such a way where I felt like I was reaching them. Like I had never experienced that before. So I think in a way it opened a door um, and I ended up winning the contest, which I think also was just like, okay, humor, there's something to it. Yeah, I think you're 11 and you describe it like a roast. Like, so it's like 11 year old <laughs> roasting Bollywood movies. I was wondering if you remember any of the things that you said. And I'll say that you write, like, you loved winning and loved the response so much. You, you sort of ate it up. You said, quote, uh, talk about power. I wanted more. So it's kind of like <laughs> your gateway to, to stand up. But even then, I felt kind of the weird divide where people would be like, oh, my gosh, you're the girl who did the funny speech. And I'd be like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, I would just try to play it down because it it still felt like there was even at the very start a split between being on stage versus myself off of stage. And uh, it almost felt like two different identities I could inhabit, which I, I guess is not uncommon as 
as an immigrant kid, you often feel caught between two cultures or two ways of being. So I think it just felt natural that uh, this other thing would be would also fall into that sort of category. What were some of the things that 11-year-old Aparna didn't like about Bollywood movies? Oh, yes. Uh, what did I make fun of? I, I think just like the multiple uh, music numbers with like costume changes and, and then like the weather would change multiple times within the same song or just uh, how dramatic they would be. Like I think there was, I think I made fun of they would feel like a woman's pulse and then they would know if she was pregnant or not. Like just, uh, I think just the campiness of them, which I think is actually the reason they're great. Um, yeah, as an 11-year-old, I was unforgiving. It was interesting to me that part of the reason why your mom encouraged you to do these things, including like forcing you to order pizza and talk to the pizza guy and pay the money, um, part of the reason she was encouraging you to do these things because she was shy too and she had to force herself out of it. And I think you're right that, you know, some of that was also about being an immigrant in the U.S., she had had an arranged marriage to my dad and then uh, moved here. And I think it's just that whole thing where you're kind of starting from scratch. You've left like all your loved ones behind and you just have to figure it out. And she was struggling with her own anxiety and, and, and panic attacks at the time. And I think she was just so worried of, of that being passed on to me and my, and my sibling that she was kind of very proactive about being like, what are ways I can really like try to curb your anxiety or your like hesitance in the world? I mean, I think we know that like mental illness doesn't necessarily work that way. You can't take a class and, and get rid of anxiety. But um, yeah, I think the intentions were, you know, I don't want you to to feel like I did when when I uh, first got here. Um, when you were younger, what kind of TV and movies did you like? What was the pop culture that was important to you? I think I had pretty plebeian tastes in terms of humor. Like, I think my movies I remember loving were like Airplane 2 and Weekend at Bernie's 2. For some reason, I always watched the <laughs> Not sequels the first one. and I didn't. Yeah, it's like whatever was on TV. I was like, uh, sign me up. But yeah, I'd... Uh, I mean, it was, yeah, it was very much because my parents, again, were very uh, diligent about not don't watch too much TV. Like books were kind of prized above everything else. Uh, so the TV I did watch was kind of a lot of times in uh, illicit form. So some sometimes it would just be like the TGIF lineup or something, because I think they were just always worried uh, uh, that we would somehow download like uh you know, loose American values that we did not need. Um, so, yeah, a lot of it was just what I could get my hands or eyes on. And what about books? What books did you were you drawn to the most growing up? I loved uh, animal, like books where the narrator was like a dog, <laughs> like a horse. I don't know if I was just like, I think the human thing is overrated. I should have been born a dog or a horse or something. Something about animals, I think, in nature really felt calming to me. But then I was also really into like fantasy and magic and um, like we... Uh, Grew up reading a lot of, now I'm blanking on the author, Enid Blyton, I think, a British author, where she writes a lot about, like, 
fantasy worlds and like magic places that kids travel to, um, Wizard of Oz type stuff. Yeah, anything escapist, I think. Um, like the further away from the human experience, the better. So dogs and fairies. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Dogs and fairies and magic and horses. We're listening to the interview Fresh Air's Anne-Marie Baldonado recorded with Aparna Nancherla, author of the new book Unreliable Narrator. After we take a short break, they'll talk about how Prozac factored into Nancherla's first stand-up set. I'm Terry Gross, and this is Fresh Air. This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu. Don't miss the new docuseries, Black Twitter, A People's History, from Onyx Collective and Hulu. Directed by Prentice Penny, executive producer of Insecure, Black Twitter, A People's History, tells the story of how black voices found a new home online and blossomed into a force for change while laying down some hilarious tweets along the way. From the memes to the movements, see how this powerful community shapes culture, society, and politics. Black Twitter, A People's History, is now streaming on Hulu. This message comes from Apple Card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase. That's 3% on products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. I'm Fresh Air producer Seth Kelly, popping into your podcast feeds to promote our latest Fresh Air Plus bonus episode. In 2022, our host Terry Gross talked to Bob Odenkirk following a heart attack he had on the set of his AMC cable series, Better Call Saul. I didn't see a white light. I didn't have a flashback on my life. I really had like a mind wipe. My Fresh Air colleague Susan Yakundi explains why this moment stuck out to her in the latest of our special producer postcard bonus episodes. You can hear it for yourself by subscribing to Fresh Air Plus at plus.npr.org. This is Fresh Air. I'm Terry Gross, back with more of our interview with stand-up comic, actor, and writer Aparna Nancherla. She has specials on Netflix and Comedy Central. She's written for shows like Totally Biased with W. Kamau Bell and Late Night with Seth Meyers. She's had roles in shows like BoJack Horseman and Corporate. In her stand-up, she usually talks about her anxiety and depression. Now she writes about it in her new book, Unreliable Narrator, Me, Myself, and imposter syndrome. She spoke with Fresh Air's Anne-Marie Boldenado. I read when it was time for you to go to college, you were deciding between going to Amherst, which is a small liberal arts college in Western Massachusetts, or West Point, which is, you know, the United <laughs> States Military Academy, the university for the Army. Why were, I mean, those are very different choices. Why were those your final two? <laughs> okay, so I grew up... Uh, I think I was maybe seven or eight when the Gulf War happened. Mm. And I think I full hook, line, and sinker just swallowed all the U.S. war propaganda. Um, You know, just like, I want to serve my country. I just feel like what we do is so important. Like, I was just, I was that kid. I was, you know, pledging allegiance on my own time. Um, And so I I think I had always kind of glamorized uh, 
the military in some strange way just because the ads made it look so exotic and, and glorious and I kind of bought all the taglines and then as I got older I think it was more just I bought into this idea of they kind of teach you how to be like something about the fact that the military it's like they tell you how to dress they tell you where to be every hour of the day like you kind of learn to be self-reliant like I found all those things appealing and I sort of didn't uh highlight as much the fact that you know you're in the military you have to fire a gun you have to go uh to places and maybe uh with politics you don't agree with like I sort of glossed over all that and was just like I'm gonna be a leader you know and I'm gonna know how to direct other people and and know what to do with my life like I think it just maybe scratched an existential itch that I didn't know how else to accomplish can you relate to teen Aparna like can you remember sort of how it felt like to almost make that other decision yeah, I can relate in that I, I think I just wanted that sense of belonging so badly, too. And I think that's one thing with the military. It's like you're part of a team. You you like fit into a bigger hole. And I think that that really appealed to me. But the funny thing is I visited West Point. I think they had like, you know, a thing you could if you were interested in going there, you could visit for a weekend. And I didn't like it at all. And I and I was like, didn't feel like I fit in immediately. Mm. And I was still like, should I go? Like, I, I think I yeah, I I was truly all over the map when I was a teen. And so I get it. I get where the impulse came from. But I'm also glad I did not go that way. I think it can also be compelling for children of immigrants or like, you know, um, people of color in this country as a way of kind of feeling like you're part of the United States. Yeah, it feels like it, it's sort of an unimpeachable way to prove that you are American or like you deserve to be American, I guess. When there's a lot of messaging otherwise that <laughs> you're not. Yeah. I, you know? and. Yeah, and I was the only one in my family born in the U.S. Like, everyone else was born in India. And so I think I really leaned into that of, like, I'm an American. I have to I have to show that I'm grateful sort of thing. There's a section of the book where you talk about beauty standards and how you were self-conscious about your looks. And you kind of joke your way into talking about how you had anorexia when you were in college, you know, issues with food. Mm -hmm. um, you ran cross-country a lot, too. Um, and the irony of what you say, you say, you write, the ugly truth was that my body disappearing made me more visible in a good way. Um, so you write eloquently about why you think you had problems with food and how it had to do with expectations and control. Can you talk about what, in retrospect, you think what was going on with you during that time? Yeah, for me, the eating felt like a kind of me trying to get at issues that were happening deeper where I, similar to, you know, wanting to enter the military and kind of figure out a path in life, I figured once I went to college, I would just get a lot of answers that first year of either what my passion was to pursue professionally or just make friendships that I would feel like I had been missing uh, before that. And you know, I definitely found uh, connections that I, I still value today, but I 
still felt as confused as ever at the end of that first year. And I think that led to somewhat of an existential spiral of like, wait, I I did all the things right in high school, you know, like especially as a immigrant kid where you're trying to like get good grades and have good extracurriculars and get into a good school. And then that's kind of the, you don't think past that. That's like everything is kind of working towards that goal. And then I think I thought once I got there, something would be resolved for me or fixed and it wasn't. And I think that led to a real like, wait, well, then what am I doing? Like, what is any of this for um, if if there's no like kind of catharsis at the end? And that I think then pivoted into trying to control my eating because it was sort of like, well, I can't figure out what I wanted, like what creates meaning for me. So let me just focus on what I'm going to eat for lunch and how detailed I can be about it. Like it became very like something that just consumed my brain and took up all my time. And once I took time off of school to get help for the eating disorder, I learned pretty quickly it was kind of a mask for an underlying depression. And I, I was first diagnosed with depression when I was 19 it really helped to have a name for that. Soon after that period or the period that you're talking about, you checked yourself into an eating disorders recovery clinic. And mm-hmm. that was something you had to explain to your parents. I think dealing with mental illness with immigrant parents is something that a lot of first-generation Americans have to deal with. And they, even though your parents were in medicine, too. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because I I feel like with my mom, she had her own struggles with mental health. And I think her, the fact that these conversations weren't open in our family, I think for her, it was a measure of protection of like, if Mm -hmm. I don't expose you to these things I went through, maybe you won't go through them or I will shield you from them. And then my dad's more on the side of, you know, I don't really believe in mental illness like it's more a measure of willpower which I think is not uncommon uh attitude in in the South Asian community so I yeah it was weird because like with the eating disorder specifically I think I remember him just being like I don't understand like why why would you not eat like especially coming from a scarcity mentality Mm. it's like trying to understand anorexia as an immigrant dad I think is just like this is bananas like (laughs) You have food and you're not going to eat it? Like, that's what what are you doing? You're right that you didn't have a severe enough case to be admitted, but they made an exception for you (laughs) since you lived far away. And you're right. For much of the time I was there, I kept waiting for one of the, quote, sicker women to expose me as a fraud. Even at a Center for Dysfunctional Behavior, I didn't think I made the cut. So you had imposter syndrome about your mental (laughs) illness, too. Um, but it, it, what it, so what did you learn there? I mean, it seems like you kind of like, um, I don't know, having like a, a, a way to like a systematic way to think about things. Yeah, I mean, I honestly found I mean, maybe this is a recurring theme in my, you know, emotional, mental mm-hmm. wellness journey. But I feel like anytime I've needed help for something or or been told I'm struggling with something, I find it kind of a relief because I so often in my life have maybe felt like I've had to keep up appearances or make everything seem like it's better than it actually is behind the scenes. So to be given maybe that permission to say like, oh, actually, I'm not doing well, or I'm struggling with this thing, and I need help, it sometimes just offers that space that I don't think I've always given myself, um, especially early on in life. So even at this eating disorder center, like 
I wouldn't say it was like vacation, but I found just like the fact that there was no pressure to kind of show up in any specific way. Like you just had to kind of exist throughout the day and, you know, there would be groups and then meals would be somewhat stressful. But for the most part, there was no like obligations in terms of work or uh, keeping up relationships or like keeping, um, you know, like exercising or something like that, where it almost felt like this purgatory that I actually found quite um, like a rest from how my life had gone up until that point. My guest is comedian, actor, and writer Aparna Nancherla. Her new book is called Unreliable Narrator, Me, Myself, and Imposter Syndrome. More after a break. This is Fresh Air. When did you decide that you wanted to be in comedy, to do stand-up? So I think that Bollywood speech was my first inkling that like humor was really some uh, kind of thing that I could maybe keep pursuing or that lit up something in me. And then I guess over high school, I just found like I, I observed the class clowns from afar or kind of the funnier people. And I was like, I just really like what they're doing. Um, I was never one of those people myself, but just was yeah taking notes profusely on the side. And I tried like I took a theater class, I think, in high school. And I just started watching more comedy like Conan or SNL. And and then I think I maybe one of my friends gave me a Mitch Hedberg CD. Mm. I think that was the first stand-up CD I had. And I just really loved it and listened to it a bunch of times. And I think when I went to college, um, I had started to watch more stand-up, but I still didn't really know how to access it or if it was an option for myself. And I went to an open mic with like this same friend who had given me the CD and some other friends over the summer. And, and we just went to watch and, you know, we saw that anyone could sign up and I was like, oh, maybe this is my way in. Like, this is how I try this thing that's really scary, but I'm going to give it a shot. And we I made a pact with my like other funny friend who was like, let's try it once before we go back to college. And I remember my first time was like on my 20th birthday. And I had just written about like sort of my life at that point, living at home and like working summer jobs and Yeah, it went better than I thought. But I also think part of the reason I had the courage to try it in the first place was because I had just gone on antidepressants earlier that year because I had been at the treatment center where they had put me on, I think, Prozac. And I I think anyone who's maybe been on psych meds, it's like the the antidepressants specifically, um, like when you're first on them, there's kind of this honeymoon mm. period where your colors are brighter, like everything tastes better, music sounds sweeter. Like, I think that kind of gave me the boost to try something that was so far outside my comfort zone, because otherwise I don't, yeah, I don't know if I could have without a big pharma, sad to say. <laughs> Do you remember what some of your jokes were? Um, I think one of the first jokes I did about depression might have been a tweet first. And mm-hmm. I think it was something like, uh, sometimes I'll feel sad for no reason, but then I'll remember the reason. <laughs> <laughs> I like that joke of yours. <laughs> so did addressing it in your comedy make you feel better about it? 
I think it made me feel I think what helped was feeling connected to people mm. and, and realizing that they were connecting because they also struggled with these things. Um, I think what got tricky about it was, you know, being lauded for talking about mental illness, um, maybe especially as a woman of color and having it become so uh, maybe like in what people knew about me and like what they expected from me and then feeling like maybe those same things were actually making it harder to perform because I started talking about them, but that didn't really necessarily cure them. So uh, it felt like the anxiety was still getting worse, even as I was starting to talk about it more. And so then down the road, it led me led to me like starting to cancel stuff and like not being able to show up as much. So it's funny how like the kind of performed curated version of, of something personal from your life as an artist is still not the same as the actual experience of that thing. Sort of like it feels like a like a seesaw or something like how yeah like which side of it wins yeah like the fact that people are like we we love to hear your jokes about anxiety but due to anxiety aparna cannot perform tonight (laughs) (laughs) what was it like coming up in comedy clubs um it just from the outside it seems like it could be hard to do that and at times lonely what what was that um, what was that like for you? Yeah, I started in D.C., in the D.C. comedy scene, and there was plenty of stage time and I would say a pretty welcoming um, group of people in terms of like a good community. But it was still, you know, I was a minority uh, in in being like a South Asian woman and I... I was praised early on for not doing a lot of jokes about my identity, whether that Mm. was being a woman or being a woman of color um, or being South Asian. And I think that maybe gave me this impression early on of like, oh, the more kind of neutral I make myself, um, the more uh, positively I seem to be received. And that made me kind of falsely equate erasing identity Mm. as like the right choice um, and now I feel like very differently about it where it's like, no, these are also things that are true and, and everything is, everything colors the texture of, um, what makes up my life. So I, everything is fair game to talk about, but I do remember early on probably coming from that same assimilationist mentality when, when like male comedians would be like, oh, you don't do like hacky jokes about being a woman. Like I was like, oh, Okay, <laughs> I guess I won't do hacky jokes about being a woman, but I but it's like but but it's not a hack to be the like a gender identity. It didn't make any sense like now thinking back on it, but yeah, I think it comes from that early mentality of just really wanting to fit in and prove that you, you know, belong and um yeah, I hope I hope that's like let those sort of expectations are less uh, there now just with because I started pre YouTube and all that and now I just feel like even the idea of what a comedian is is so much more expansive mm. um, and I feel like when you start in the clubs there is such a kind of calcified model that is maybe outdated mm. but it's like well once you enter a comedy club it's still 1985 <laughs> do you get heckled and if so do you feel like you get different kinds of heckling than your white male counterparts get? 
I don't get heckled huh. a lot. I think sometimes it's a stylistic thing. Like some people, I think they're just something about their persona maybe calls out for more interaction or they're more interactive with the crowd. But I think I set up pretty quickly that I'm like, this is like I'm barely holding it together. So please, like, do not feed the animals, you know, sort of thing where it's just like, just let me get through this and we can all go home. Well, Aparna Nancherla, thank you so much for joining us and congratulations on the book. Thank you so much. Thank you for the interview. Aparna Nancherla's new book is called Unreliable Narrator, Me, Myself, and Imposter Syndrome. She spoke with Fresh Airs and Marie Baldonado. After we take a short break, John Powers will review the new series, The Gold, based on a 1983 gold heist. We're talking three tons of gold bars. This is Fresh Air. November 26, 1983, a group of British crooks robbed a security depot near Heathrow Airport and made off with 26 million British pounds in gold. The robbery inspired the new crime drama, The Gold, starring Hugh Bonneville and Jack Lowden. The first two episodes are now streaming on Paramount+, Plus, with a new episode dropping each Sunday. Our critic at large, John Power, says the show offers a lively look at the era when greed suddenly became good. Back in the 1980s, the British Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher famously declared, there's no such thing as society. Although this was simply her hyperbolic way of saying that people shouldn't rely on government support, her words were taken quite differently. They fed the popular perception that, in the hyper-capitalist Britain that Thatcher was working to create, everybody was on their own. This idea forms the backdrop of The Gold, an enjoyable new series made, along with the BBC, for the Paramount Plus streaming service. It's based on a real-life gold heist of 1983, in which thieves broke into a warehouse and made off with three tons of gold bars. But this six-part series is not the story of the heist. It's about the aftermath, a zippy saga propelled by a terrific cast, sharply drawn characters, and a slyly pungent vision of the go-go 80s. Although the gold does begin with the robbery, its creator, Neil Forsyth, is more interested in the colorful outlaws who deal with the gold once it's stolen. They're spearheaded by a vainglorious fence, Kenneth Noy, who's played with cheeky charisma by the great young actor Jack Lowden, whom you'll know from Slow Horses. Noy brings in his usual partner in crime, a dodgy gold broker named John Palmer. That's Tom Cullen. Then he enlists a sleek, social-climbing lawyer, Edwin Cooper, played by Dominic Cooper. Even as we watch this crew go about its plans, we follow their pursuit by a police task force. It's led by Brian Boyce, a righteous, dryly ironic detective chief inspector wittily played by Hugh Bonneville, who seems liberated at no longer being the dense earl on Downton Abbey. Boyce's brightest officer is Nikki Jennings, nicely played by Charlotte Spencer, the supremely honest daughter of a South London criminal. Naturally, she's underrated at first because this is the 80s and she's a woman. The crooks work up elaborate ways to turn the gold into money, a process that involves smelted ingots, fake paperwork from Sierra Leone, genuine Swiss bank accounts, and real estate investments along the Thames that change the face of London. Meanwhile, the task force is dogging their footsteps. Yet Boyce isn't interested in merely catching the thieves, whom he considers garden-variety criminals. 
He wants to nab the more powerful and more dangerous people. Well-off fences like Noy, who bribe cops for protection. And the elite, who reap the benefits of organized crime, but don't get their fingers dirty. Here, Noy talks his gold broker friend into handling the three tons of gold, a vastly bigger job than anything they've done before. He presents the idea as almost a social justice issue. We've done all right, considering where we're from. But I want to do all right the way the other side of this country does all right. People that come from money, they don't think much about what's right or wrong when they want to make more of it. No. They use what they have. Well, what we have and they don't is that we know villains. And villains know us. So let's use it. Relishing a fast pace and broad canvas, the gold zoots between scenes, locations, and characters. Everyone registers vividly, be it the shrewd, quietly menacing South London hood played by Sean Harris, or the gold broker's wife, that's Stephanie Martini, who doesn't know that her husband is busy moving a fortune in stolen gold every month. She wonders why he's too busy to take a holiday with his family. Like nearly all British stories, the gold is shadowed, if not shaped, by the class system. Both the villains and the police come from the lower strata of a society that's run for the benefit of their posh social betters. The show isn't without sympathy for its bad actors, taking care to let us understand what drives the crooks to be crooks. The series' center is the battle between its two strongest characters, cocky Kenneth Noy and buttoned-up Inspector Boyce. Both profoundly resent the class system. But where the amoral Noy believes that he's merely grabbing his fair share of a system rigged against him, Boyce holds to an older idea of honor. He's especially angered by corruption among the police and the well-off, and he works hard to slow the rot. But he's too smart to think he can stop it. At one point, the gold dealer is cooking up a real estate deal in Ibiza. To smooth things along, he needs to pass an envelope full of cash to a local cop. He finds this reassuring. It confirms his sense that everyone has a price. This isn't true, of course. Just look at Boyce. Yet it is emblematic. The gold conjures the era when, from the mean streets of South London to the corridors of power, it became acceptable to think that money is the measure of all things. John Powers reviewed the new crime drama series, The Gold. It's streaming on Paramount+. Tomorrow on Fresh Air, we'll talk about why jazz was banned in Hitler's Germany and how it was repurposed as propaganda on shortwave radio using existing swing tunes with rewritten, repellent Nazi lyrics intended to weaken British and American resolve. We'll talk with NPR Scott Simon about his new audiobook, Swing Time for Hitler, and hear some of the Nazi music. I hope you'll join us. To keep up with what's on the show and get highlights of our interviews, follow us on Instagram at NPR Fresh Air. Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. Our technical director and engineer is Audrey Bentham. Our interviews and reviews are produced and edited by Amy Sallett, Phyllis Myers, Sam Brigger, Lauren Krenzel, 
Heidi Saman, Anne-Marie Baldonado, Teresa Madden, Thea Chaloner, Seth Kelly, and Susan Yakundi. Our digital media producer is Molly C.V. Nesper. Roberta Shorrock directs the show. Our co-host is Tanya Mosley. I'm Terry Gross. All that sitting and swiping, your body is adapting to your technology. Learn how and what you can do about it. I really felt like the cloud in my brain kind of dissipated. Once I started realizing what a difference these little bricks were making, there's no turning back for me. Take NPR's Body Electric Challenge. Listen to the series wherever you get your podcasts. Support for NPR and the following message come from PBS. PBS invites you on a trip to the future. A Brief History of the Future is a groundbreaking series filled with hope and possibility about where people are today and what could come next. From tech to tradition, from climate to culture, from science to spirituality. Join futurist Ari Wallach on a journey around the world as he meets the brilliant minds and brave pioneers remaking people's futures for generations to come. A Brief History of the Future. Stream now on PBS and the PBS app.